Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and dynamic women invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and my guest today is author Deborah Phillips, whose new book is titled And This Is My Friend Sandy, Sandy Wilson's The Boyfriend, London Theater, and Gay Culture. The musical The Boyfriend, with book, music, and lyrics by Sandy Wilson, is one of the most successful British musicals of all time. It emerged originally out of London's secretive but vibrant gay theatrical subculture in 1952, a time when we must remember it was illegal to be homosexual. By the following year, The Boyfriend and Sandy Wilson were the biggest hits in London's West End, where they created nearly as much excitement as Queen Elizabeth's coronation that same year. That original West End production ran for five years. Meanwhile, a hit American production of The Boyfriend opened on Broadway in 1954, making a star out of Julie Andrews. Eighteen years later, in 1972, an ill-conceived film version was released starring Twiggy and Tommy Toon and directed by Ken Russell. Despite all of this, prior to this book, very little has been written about Sandy Wilson. Deborah Phillips, who is professor of literature and cultural history at the University of Brighton, is the first researcher to delve into Wilson's extensive archives, out of which she has created this in-depth portrait of Wilson as both a key figure in post-war British theater and gay culture. This book and this interview introduced me to a number of fascinating subjects that I'd never heard of before, including the hilarious BBC radio series that inspired the book's title and the secret gay language, Polari. All that has sent me down a number of mesmerizing rabbit holes, and I'll be sharing the articles and video clips that I found there in our Broadway Nation Facebook group. This episode is made possible in part through the generous support of our Broadway Nation Patron Club members, Anne Welsh, Chris Mode, and Bob Braun. If you too would like to support the work of Broadway Nation, I'll have information about how to do that at the end of the podcast. Here we go. Welcome, Deborah Phillips. It's so wonderful to have you here today on Broadway Nation to talk about your new book, and this is my friend Sandy, Sandy Wilson's The Boyfriend, London Theater, and Gay Culture. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I just read the title and the subtitle of the book, which gives us a sense that this is not a biography of Sandy Wilson and not a typical making of the boyfriend account of the show. How would you describe this book? I think what it is, is it's a cultural history of how Sandy Wilson fits into the history of musical theatre, because he's always there as a footnote, but nothing more. And I think he warrants more than that. He's also, I think, a really important figure in terms of gay history, that he's a transitional figure, both in terms of the musical and in terms of modes of homosexuality, that he begins his life very much in the shadow of being discreet and very closeted and ends his life still discreet, but he lives through the great gay liberation fronts. So I think that in itself is an interesting period. 
He has a very long life. He lives to 80, is that right? Yeah, yeah. He's born in the 1920s. Yes, but he says firmly that he doesn't really remember the 1920s. And yet that becomes the subject of his most famous show is the 1920s. Absolutely. It's a love letter to the 1920s. That he never really knew. but That uh, he never really knew. So when does he die? What year does he die? 2014. 2014, which is now basically seems so recent. Part of what you get into is the way the musical theater changed and the way queer culture changed in that period of his life. Yeah, and theatre changed. I mean, The Boyfriend is two years before Look Back in Anger. But, I mean, one of the things that the book argues is that the distinction between the West End and avant-garde theatres like the Royal Court is not as great as theatre history assumes. Dan Rettbelato has written about this in his book 1956 and all that. But Sandy Wilson's already synthesises that problem in that he is at Oxford with all the major players at the Royal Court. He knows them well. One of his most esoteric musicals was commissioned by the Royal Court. They didn't actually do it, but he was close enough to them that they did actually commission him. That's another story, but it's a good story. And I think that's true in so many cases when you look at history is the separate sides are actually very much more intertwined than historians make them out to be later on. Yep, exactly so. Yeah, the difference in American theater as well, the difference between the avant-garde and the commercial side of the theater, it often overlaps very, very much. Yeah, the people and the power brokers overlap a lot. And go back and forth between the two. Exactly. So for many musical theater fans today, the name Sandy Wilson and even the show The Boyfriend will be somewhat obscure references. And yet you put in years of research into writing and telling their story. What do you think makes Sandy Wilson and The Boyfriend and Sandy Wilson's other shows important enough for readers to sit down and spend the time discovering what you've discovered? Somewhere in the world, there will be a production of The Boyfriend. Schools do it. Amateur dramatics do it. Most people will know the boyfriend through the very spectacular Ken Russell movie, which, by the way, Sandy Wilson absolutely loathed. But I think many people have a fondness for it. I grew up with it. I have a particular fondness for it. But when I was an undergraduate, we did a student production It's a perfect little musical, I think. It's not difficult to stage. Every character has at least one great number. It's not expensive to put on. It was put on at the Little Players Theatre, which had no money, and it very much came out of a making-do-and-mending post-war ethos. So it's not an expensive extravagant or lavish production. Colin Sell, who was Sandy Wilson's musical director, who's musically directed a lot of other musicals, says for him it is his favourite musical. He says it's just his The Perfect Musical. It's beautifully structured. I don't claim that I am psychic, but one look at you and I kick away every scruple I learned as a pupil in school, my dear. I'm not one to make predictions, but I've thrown off all restrictions And don't mind confessing I think it's a blessing that you are here Though I'm prepared to find I'm wrong I've got a funny feeling We belong together I could be happy with you If you could be happy with me 
I'd be contented to live anywhere. What would I care as long as you were there? Skies may not always be blue. But one thing is clear as can be. I know that I could be happy with you, my darling. If you could be happy with me. That in itself, I think, is enough. But also, I have a particular interest in the post-war period in British history, the prelude to the 1960s, and watching where movements like the Women's Liberation Movement, the Gay Liberation Movement, where they were seeded. They didn't come out of nowhere. That's, again, a kind of false opposition in history, in what historians have to say in that you know, the 60s was suddenly this explosion of liberation and nothing had happened before. And it did happen. And I think it's important that's noted and recorded. Absolutely. I know with my students, it's hard for them to understand that liberation ebbs and flows and that periods like the 1920s and 30s were relatively liberated compared to what came after and that that set the seeds for what would then re-emerge again in the 60s. Yes, yes, exactly. And I think one of the things you have to recognize about the British context in the 1950s was how draconian the law was, that male homosexuality, lesbianism, was never illegal, not because Queen Victoria didn't believe in it, as it's sometimes <laughs> mooted. Um, that's not actually true. I think what is true was that ideas of female sexuality was that women just weren't sexual enough to be interested in each other. But male homosexuality was really cracked down on, in part because of the Cambridge spiring, who mm-hmm. were upper-class Cambridge-educated homosexual men, and that generated a, a moral panic. Kinsey brought out a report saying that homosexuality was much more prevalent. And one of the things that was so frightening that was taken from the Kinsey report, Kinsey later rolled back on it and spoke in favour of homosexual law or reform. But the terrifying thing about homosexuality was that a man could pass you in the street and be invisible, but nonetheless a threat. There's a real paranoia around especially homosexual men from the upper classes who've been educated at Oxford and Cambridge. There's also the Montague trial, which is a symptom of this crackdown on homosexuality. That happened in 1954, and I think it was the first time that an aristocrat had been arrested. And it was Lord Montague with his cousin, who was another aristocrat, Pitt Rivers, and a friend of Sandy Wilson's called Peter Wildblood. And Peter Wildblood's a really interesting figure, but they were all jailed. And Peter Wildblood had been adopted with Sandy Wilson and was a very close friend. And there are latter in the archive of his friend's fear and concern for him. What you have to recognise is that at the time of this camp piece of fluff, this is an incredibly dangerous, stressful time for gay men. And that camp piece of fluff, the boyfriend, is being produced in one of the havens for gay culture at this time. Absolutely. The Players Theatre Club is one of a string, and I think probably the last surviving club of that kind. 
So it's a private members club and was run by two gay men who were a couple, Reginald Woolley and his partner, Dom Gemmell. And Reginald Woolley was the most incredibly talented set designer. He had this tiny space at the Players Theatre Club. It had an absolute minimal stage. And he did every year a Victorian pantomime, which had really elaborate sets. There was always a transformation scene. And Don Gemmell was the producer. I think it was very much a safe space for gay men. I mean, I think it was one of many. But private members clubs, private members bars, I think were places where you could be relatively open. So I want to hear more about that. But let's back up a moment. As we said, it's not a biography of Sandy Wilson. But of course, you do tell us his story. Who is Sandy Wilson? Where did he come from? What's his childhood like? He's really resolutely upbeat in his autobiography. But you get clues that it was not as untroubled as he makes it seem. He was from a genteelly impoverished family. His father was part of a family woolens business, so they were quite affluent, and his father had gone to India in the way that men of that class and generation would have done at the time. But it seems that they lost all their money in the crash. That's quite interesting in terms of his sexuality as well, because I think, like his heroes, Noel Coward and Ivan Novello, he had to perform being more affluent and secure in his class than he actually was. His father had been at Harrow and his ambition was for his son to go to Harrow, but the money wasn't there. Wilson makes real light of this in his autobiography, but he must have really grafted. He got a scholarship to Harrow by the skin of his teeth, I think flourished there. And he had to have a scholarship both to go to Harrow and to go to Oxford because the family just didn't have the money to send him. His father died when he was quite young, but doesn't seem to have caused any major trauma. He seems to have been close to his sisters and to his mother. He was the only son in a family of sisters. There are very few clues as to how he grew up. Most of what he writes about in terms of his childhood is his absolute passion for the theatre and for the West End. And what he collects is theatre programmes, when what he remembers about school holidays is traipsing around the West End and going to every production he could. So he was a fan from very early on. Clearly, he's obsessed with theatre and music from the very beginning, it seems. Yes. And he's staging productions at school, at Harrow. He does a production of Frankenstein. The war intervenes and the performance is interrupted by an air raid. He's very miffed by that. (laughs) More worried about that than the fact that it's a natural air raid. Now, describe this British musical theatre that he's growing up in, in the 1930s and 40s, that he's obsessed with. You mentioned Noel Coward and Ivor Novello. They're at the pinnacle of this. Is that true? Yes, that's absolutely true. With their friend, Binky Beaumont, who ran H.M. Tennant Productions. And H.M. Tennant was the theatrical producer. And between the three of them, they knew everyone who was anyone, you know, in terms of theatre stars in Britain and in America. And they put on these really lavish productions. Ivan Novello had the good looks of the matinee idol and was lusted of by both men and women. And they were hugely 
successful. But I think it's important to stress that Binky Beaumont, I think, was key to keeping the theatres going throughout the war. He petitioned government, say, British morale needs the theatre. And so the theatres were open largely because of him. And Noel Coward produced very patriotic, musicals and plays and starred and directed in a patriotic film called In Which We Serve. Both he and Binky Beaumont came out of the war as very much central figures in keeping British morale up. And these are all three gay men. And all three gay men. And another figure who's part of their circle is Terence Rattigan, another gay man, who is the most successful British playwright of the 1930s and 40s and into the 50s. So the, I don't know if the irony is the right word, but the incredible fact that British theatre is run by these four gay men and presumably hundreds of others during several decades when that's not very threatening, and then into several decades when it's incredibly threatening or incredibly dangerous to be gay. There's a lovely account by Peter Wildblood of one of his aunts saying to his mother, all these men should be taken out and shot. His mother turns to her and says, but then we wouldn't have any radio, anything on the television, no theatre to go to, no musicals to go to, no books. I think it was widely known, but kept discreet. So this is not a secret so much as it is, I guess it's hidden in plain sight, or you could know it if you wanted to know it. How well known was it that these men were gay, that the British theatre was largely run by gay men. Well, Noel Coward had the wonderful line about his own sexuality, which was, I suppose there might be a few old ladies in Scotland who don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It was known among insiders, but hiding in plain sight is a very good phrase. It's why I use the Ivy Restaurant, which was then and still is a well-known theatrical place to meet. Binky Beaumont and Terence Rattigan and Noel Coward and Ivan Novella had their own table in the centre of the restaurant. So it was visible to those who knew. But I think you could choose not to know. And many did. And the Ivy Restaurant is another of these safe havens for gay men during this period. I think less so in that it's not a private members club, but it's an indication of how confident in their discretion they were. One thing I'd like to add to the context of paranoia, I mean, there was a famous spread in a tabloid newspaper in Britain which covered the Montague trial with the headline, These Evil Men. Barry Cryer said this was a terrible, terrible time to be gay. And that was true until 1967, which was the Homosexual Law Reform Act. The Wolferdon Report came out in 1957 and recommended amending the law, but it took a decade to happen. And even then, the age of consent was not equalised. You had to be over 21. Amazing. Coward and Novello, and I assume Binky Beaumont, were Sandy Wilson's idols as he's growing up. Yeah, they're a generation ahead of him. They're all good-looking, they're all suave, they're all immensely successful at what they do. How does this affect his own gay identity? He doesn't seem to be traumatized about discovering that he's gay. Does he know that they're gay, do you think? Is this part of why he idolizes them? He sees a way to be. I think so. I mean, I've got no evidence for that, but I do think 
So, I mean, I think he very much modelled himself on that mode of being. When he publishes his autobiography, which is 1975, he's still discreet when there's actually no reason to be. So I think that is very much where he locates itself. There's a certain generation of gay men who I think quite regret the secretiveness and the mischief of disguising your sexuality. And that comes across in some of his lyrics. Regrets that that era is gone to a certain extent or misses that aspect of it. Yes. Like every one of his generation, he serves in the war. He seems to have a relatively easy time of it and not to be a traumatic situation. And then he goes to Oxford, again, like so many of his generation after the war, coming back to go to college. Describe Oxford for us at this period after the war. What is it like to be a young gay man at Oxford at the 1940s? Well, you are a member of the Gilded Youth, and Oxford particularly, I think, is haunted by the spirit of Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited. Beautiful young men, beautiful colleges. But for Sandy Wilson, the most exciting thing about it is the theatre. And there are two really significant groups which were then and continue to be significant in producing generations of performers and directors in theatre. And that was the Oxford University Dramatic Society known as OODS and the Experimental Theatre Company, which was set up to do more experimental work, but also to include women, which the Oods were kind of very snooty about women. Oods produced reviews. They were aware of their privilege. I mean, Sandy Wilson gives a talk to the Experimental Theatre Club a decade or so later and says, you've got an advantage being at Oxford because producers come up from London to see what's going on. They were clever enough to do a night of their review, which was called Oxford Circus, at the Oxford Playhouse, and it actually went to London later. But if you look at the programmes for these student productions, they're full of luminaries. John Schlesinger, the theatre director, Kenneth Tynan, Peter Wildblood, who I've mentioned before, who was a key figure in the Wolfenden Inquiry. The two men who were later to become the act at the drop of a hat, Flanders and Swan, were both involved in that review. You recognise some of the names of the people who were the prop boys. So this is a very soon-to-be powerful group of young men, many of them homosexual. A lot of them were. Who are about to become the next generation of British theatre leadership. Tony Richardson, who went on to the Royal Court, was one of them. But in his autobiography, Wilson's very disingenuous about their sexuality. He says, you know, there we were naked in the changing rooms, but we never knew. And you think... (laughs) Hang on. (laughs) You must have done. You'd been in the army. And this is college, after all. And his contribution to these reviews is to write songs. He writes the music and the lyrics for much of this material that's happening. And when he leaves Oxford, his first breaks will be in writing for reviews. And he also plays the piano. And he does do some straight plays. Kenneth Tynan is much more concerned with serious theatre and puts on productions of avant-garde plays at Oxford and Sandy Wilson 
does appear in them. They're obviously very close. Again, the worlds cross over so much there. They're doing all of it. And Sandy's involved in both sides of all aspects of the theater. Yeah. When he leaves Oxford, he enters this world. I love the way you described this little London world of small theaters and private clubs and this golden age of the review to a certain extent. I guess it would be sort of the equivalent of off-Broadway in New York. Yes, although it's smaller and very concentrated area of London, I think more concerned with review rather than theatre. They were often on late at night. I mean, I have to say I'm too young to have been to them, so I only know about them from descriptions and from programmes. But they would be often performed late at night so that stars from the West End, which was not far away from where many of these theatres were in Soho and around, would come and do their shtick after their main show. So you would get major stars like Hermione Gingold, for whom Sandy Wilson writes several songs, performing in these tiny theatres. And the reason they're private clubs is what? Partly, this is also a period at which the Lord Chamberlain had the right to censor any scripts. And so if it was a private member's club, that you would evade that. You could put on anything you wanted to put on in a private club. Yeah. And you could put on controversial plays that the Lord Chamberlain's office would not permit. But I think also, although because it's so discreet, I have no evidence, but I think also because a lot of the members would have been gay men. Right. It was a way to create a safe space. Yeah. I should say that Neil Bartlett has written an essay in which he says, you know, there's nothing natural about why gay men should be attracted to the theatre or that there are more gay men within theatrical circles than anywhere else, which may be true. But nonetheless, in the period, it's just a repeated pattern of what the theatre meant. The theatre was a place where you could recognise yourself as gay. And same thing in New York. So I'm not sure I agree with Mr. Bartlett on that. I think there is something, and it's a chicken or the egg situation. Are you drawn to the theater because you're gay or are gay men drawn to the theater because they perceive that it's a safe space? I don't know. That's the question that I'm not sure can be answered, but I do think there's some affinity connection there. Yeah. And Neil Bartlett actually wrote a play called Night After Night, which is about the invisible gay men who staff every major theater. You know, the people in the cloakrooms and behind the bar and selling programs and ushering you to your seats and in the cloakroom. They're all gay men, but not noticed. Especially in London. I mean, you do notice that if your antenna are out, and it's very interesting to see that still to this day, it seems. Yeah. Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be right back. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. 
so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make everyday delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. So one of those small private clubs, theaters, is the Players Theater Club, and you devote an entire chapter to that. And we'll get into some reasons why you do that, but mostly it's because it's where the boyfriend will emerge from. That's where Sandy Wilson will become involved in the boyfriend. But prior to Sandy Wilson, describe the Players Theater Club, because it has a long history prior to Sandy Wilson and the boyfriend. It does. It has a very eclectic history. I mean, British audiences are familiar with the ethos of the players that are from a television program called The Good Old Days, which used many of the performers from the Players Theatre Club. But when it began, it was a space for putting on new drama and experimental plays, also a site for the kind of reviews we've been talking about. But what it prided itself on was recreations of Victorian music hall. I think that really resonated in the post-war period of a nostalgia for a place where Britain had its empire. Queen Victoria was on the throne. The Plebs Theatre has a bar and you're encouraged to bring your glasses to your seats and toast the Queen, who is Queen Victoria. And this is, of course, nostalgia for something the audience is not old enough to have remembered themselves. No. It's their grandparents' generation. Yeah, yeah. It's like the 1920s was for Sandy Wilson. It's an imagined past. They become very famous for recreating this or creating a fictional version of the British Music Hall. It's not entirely fictional in that they really did their research. They went to the British Library and they got Victorian pantomime scripts and musical songs and were concerned to reproduce them with authenticity. And that actually was terribly important to Sandy Wilson. He was very concerned that in The Boyfriend, the representation of the 1920s should be authentic. And that was why he loathed the New York production, because he felt it didn't have that authenticity. Also, in terms of British culture, musicals, it's actually a very subversive form of entertainment. A lot of these songs are about sexually voracious women or drunken men. There's a lot of double entendre. It's assertion of difference, I think, and of refusing the conventional. So in a way, the audience and the creators at the Players Theatre Club are sort of the counterculture to a certain extent. They're reviving these songs that sort of question the traditional view of Victorian society. 
Yes, and particularly marriage and the family. I mean, these are songs about husbands and wives who are miserable. And I think you mentioned this in the book, that one of the differences between what you would see at the Players Theatre Club and what you would have seen on the television show that sort of was a spin-off of this kind of thing was the campy tone of it or the sense of irony. Yes, exactly. It's cleaned up because it's on the BBC. It's no longer as edgy as it was on stage. And as satirical, I guess. I love the way you describe one of these evenings at the Players Theatre Club. It started with a very particular song, Every Night, the theme song of these reviews. Well, the Players Theatre Club had an anthem, which was a 19th century musical song, of which the first line is, Oh, the fairies. Goes on saying nothing but splendour and feminine gender. There's a fellow around town who they call Johnny Brown who is on the lookout for ideas. When he hears of a show, you bet that he'll know that he's constantly changing his gear. One night he said, gee, if you come out with me, you'll be in for the dizziest time. Inside theatre walls, he lounged in the stalls, and he sat through a grand pantomime. Ooh, I'll talk about this a bit later, but I went as a child and I took it entirely straight that fairies were lovely and feminine. It wasn't until I got quite a bit older that I realised that there was another way of reading that. So every night at the Players Theatre Club, whatever the show was, would start with this song? Absolutely. Sort of like the national anthem used to be in the United States, (laughs) that they would perform that before any performance. Yes. That's quite amazing. This is on purpose, I'm assuming. Nothing was ever said. It was just the way it was. I mean, the thing about the working class musical, this is a period, the post-war period, is of really very fixed gender relations, an idea of what masculinity is and what femininity is. And these songs did subvert that expectation of conventional roles. I don't think it was necessarily conscious, but it was certainly part of the experience. So you talked about going to the theatre as a child. This is because you have a personal connection to the Players Theatre Club. Tell us about that. Yep. My mother was an actor. After the war, she got a job at the Players Theatre Club and she loved it. And she worked in the office and she worked behind the bar. And her great moment was playing the bad fairy, Sleeping Beauty. And she was still prone to quote lines from this pantomime. The Players has this ritual of everybody who's been a significant part of it is given lifelong honorary membership. And every year my mother would get her card. 
And every year we would go for the pantomime. And in those days, it was really glamorous because there was a harlequinade before the actual pantomime, something I've, I've never seen anywhere else. Followed by the pantomime, afterwards we would go backstage to see Reginald Woolley and Don Gemmell, who were very close friends of my mother's. So they often came around. And my parents had the record of the boyfriend and I loved it. And I played it over and over again. And I still know all the words to all the songs. When I saw that the Harry Ransom Centre in Austin Texas had Sandy Wilson's archives. I thought, I am the person who needs to go and read those. <laughs> Absolutely. And did you ever meet Sandy Wilson himself? Sadly, no. I did, however. One of the very nice things about having done this book is that I had a contact for Sandy Wilson's civil partner, Chuck Yoy, who is still alive and still lives in their house, Falmouth. I had a contact for him, but I kind of didn't want to get in touch with him before I'd read the material, I wanted to come to the material without too much in my head. So I was very nervous about having written this biography without consulting him. And I sent him a copy. What was lovely was that he was thrilled. He was really delighted that somebody had done it. He invited me to dinner with Sandy Wilson's best friend, who's another musicologist. It was a very strange experience of being with these two men who were mourning a man that I'd never met but I was very glad to be there and it's really nice that Chuck and I have become friends very very interesting in talking about the players theater there are two subjects that come up very closely involved with gay culture and you keep returning to them throughout the book at various times first of all is the concept of camp and yeah. we just talked about opening every performance at the players theater singing oh the fairies that is somewhat the definition of camp I would think but how does camp fit into this overall picture? How is the camp sensibility related to what's happening in this theatre and these other theatres at this time? That's a really complicated question. It's a really difficult question. I did a whole conference with some colleagues on camp. I think we all came out of it still lacking any easy definition. But I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Richard Dyer. He's a terrific British cultural historian. He's written a really important essay called It's Being So Camp As Keeps Us Going. And I think camp is both a form of defiance and a mode of subversion. I think one of the things for me that defines camp is that at some level it could be taken straight, much like Noel Coward and Ivor Novello and Binky Beaumont, who just look like particularly well-turned-out gentlemen. And Oh, the Fairies, if you're a child, it's an innocent song. So I think camp for me is a coded way of asserting your sexual identity, which will be recognised by some and missed by others. And I think that spirit suffuses the Players Theatre Club and suffuses the boyfriend. There's something about camp, and I appreciate the challenge here because I have students say to me, what is camp? That's the hardest question you can get sometimes because it is so hard to define. You know it when you see it. <laughs> exactly. It's like pornography. The people who have tried to define it, and Susan Sontag most famously, yeah. I find that not very satisfying explanation of what camp is. No. I think she misses the mark quite a bit. It's like a butterfly. If you dissect it, it dies. <laughs> 
Exactly. And yet I think it's, as you say, it's very subversive. I also think it's aggressive in a way, in a positive way, because people understand that they're missing something. The people who don't get camp also understand that they're missing something and that somehow whatever the work of art is, is being targeted above their head or around them. And that is disconcerting to them. I don't know if American audiences be familiar with the radio program Round the Horn, which starred Kenneth. Williams and Hugh Paddock, who were both gay men. But the extraordinary thing about Round the Horn is it made use of Polari, which is a coded gay language, which allowed people to talk without being understood. Round the Horn was full of these extraordinary jokes. I could go on at some length about Round the Horn, which is a rather amazing programme, but one of the lines is, oh, we're very involved in a criminal practice. The criminal practice, of course, being, at the time, homosexuality. I remember as a child, my mother and her best friend hooting with laughter and simply thinking, I don't understand what this is all about, but I know there's something very subversive going on here. But I couldn't have explained it. And this is a radio program that's on in what era? It was on in the 50s and the 60s, on mainstream BBC primetime radio. And you mentioned Polari, which is a term I was not familiar with, and I assume that many in an American audience won't be either. What is Polari? It's a whole language which divides into various substrates. There are two very good books by an academic linguist, Paul Baker, about the origins and practice of Polari as a language, and it has separate strains. There's a West End and an East End Polari, and the West End was very much spoken among theatrical people and chorus boys, and it was a kind of theatre speak, which is still used. There are, I think, very few people who speak fluent Polari, but you will often find gay men using a Polari word, like naff. Is naff a term in... What is naff? Um, normal as fuck. No, that's unknown to us here, at least <laughs> to me. We know Sandy Wilson spoke it. He shared a flat. I don't know if it, there was anything more with somebody who was in a West End chorus who spoke it a lot. And you could see at this period when you could easily be arrested, it was a necessary strategy. One of the things that's so interesting in the aftermath of the Montague trial and during the Montague trial is how much homosexuality was associated with the theatre by the law and by the media. Should I explain something about the Montague trial? Certainly. Uh, the Montague trial was in the aftermath of the Cambridge spiring, and it was Lord Montague of Bewley, who was very, very upper crust, and his cousin, and Peter Wildblood, who was a friend of Sandy Wilson's from Oxford. And they were arrested for the corruption of two young airmen. And the airmen were given immunity if they testified against these three upper-class men. And one of the things that was cited in evidence against them was that these men had taken the young men to the theatre. And that in itself was enough to suggest homosexuality. Wow. And the Montague trial is one of the pivots that begins the move towards homosexual law reform. Peter Wildblood was arrested... And jailed. And he wrote this 
passionate plea for a change in the law called Against the Law, which his publishers sent to every MP in the House of Commons. And he was the only gay man who was invited to give evidence at the Wolfenden inquiry. Kinsey was one of the people who gave evidence at the inquiry, and he said he was shocked at the number of men who had committed no crime other than to be homosexual, who were currently in jails, and that he very much argued for a change in the law. It takes 10 years, but that is the beginnings of a shift in attitude. In the case of Peter Wildblood, a refusal on the part of gay men to be quiet. This experience sort of turns him into an activist. Yes, within limits. One of the things about the early homosexual law reform movement was that it did its absolute utmost to be as respectable as possible. And in that way, it saw itself as distant from the gay liberation front. It somewhat disapproved of the flamboyance of the gay liberation front. But the generation who spearheaded the gay liberation front hadn't gone through what the previous generation had gone through. Very similar to the situation in the United States with those generations. Back to Polari for just one second. This is another case where the gay culture and the theater culture sort of overlap because yep. Polari becomes a language for theatrical types who are not homosexual. Yes. I mean, it's largely used by gay men. But it infiltrates theatrical yes. speak, I it, guess, yes. in and a way. People it, around theater would know the words. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. So, all of these elements sort of come together to provide this launch pad for The Boyfriend. And just to emphasize, Sandy Wilson writes the book, the music, and the lyrics for The Boyfriend. Yeah. Which is always extraordinary. So few people have done that successfully in the history of the musical theater. How does The Boyfriend come about? To hear the answer to that question, you'll have to join us next week when Deborah Phillips and I return for the second part of our conversation about her new book, And This Is My Friend Sandy, Sandy Wilson's The Boyfriend, London Theatre, and Gay Culture. information about how you can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for this podcast. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. That's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech. Or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.